Okay, let's continue. So we're in chapter, Gen- uh, chapter 21, Genesis 21. So 21, we just see the birth of Isaac, right? So Isaac is born and he's born against all odds and he's named Isaac because it means laughter because that's what Abraham and Sarah did when they heard God say that he will give them a child, right? Genesis 22, this is the famous chapter dealing with the sacrifice of Isaac, right? So the passage is interesting because it seems to suggest that Abraham may have made an idol of his son because it kind of specifies how much he loves his son, right? You see the repetition there, take your son, your only son whom you love, right? And when God's people get hold of an idol, what does God normally do? Doesn't like it, right? And I think we can kind of all personally attest to God stepping in when we have an idol and it's never really a nice experience, can be chastised. So rather be teachable, right? Rather be submissive to God's word. God says, take your son and kill him. So people wonder what must have been going through Abraham's mind. Like, you know, I must murder my own son. Um, And, you know, like, I think a lot of atheists kind of use this uh, to show that God is terrible. He's, you know, he's a bad guy who wants, he he supports uh, the slaughter of children or whatever. But that's not how Abraham saw it, right? Uh, And we'll see when we get to the law, and I think it's mentioned in Exodus, somewhere in like chapter 11 or 13, we'll see that in the law, right, because of man's sin, you forfeit your firstborn, right? You have to consecrate them to the Lord, right? We see this in Exodus and Deuteronomy, where it's like you must give up the firstborn of your, um, your cattle, your donkey, your male donkeys, uh, and also of your firstborn male, you must redeem it to the Lord. So that's kind of... I think how Abraham is seeing it. He's like, okay, the Lord wants to, is taking my firstborn as a means to, uh, as a means of consecration, right? So animals, you had to redeem it um, and you'd have to kill and sacrifice because of sin, because of your sin. So um, Abraham knows the promises of God, right? He knows God will raise Isaac from the dead, right? That's another thing we see about his mentality going into this. Right? We know this because of Hebrews 11. So Hebrews 11 verse 17 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in fact, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Right? So Abraham had faith in the promises of God. Because remember, Abraham knows that through Isaac, you know, many nations will be blessed. So even in verse 5 of Genesis 22, um, Abraham said, verse 5, Abraham said to the young man, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So he's saying me and the boy will come back, right? So he knows that God will raise him from the dead. God will do something. Um, he knows that if he has to sacrifice Isaac like an animal, and he burns him like you would in a sacrifice, God can raise him up from the ashes, right? So in this account, there's also rich symbolism of Christ. Uh, Abraham travels a three-day journey, right? Three days reminds us of Christ, uh, spending three days in the grave. Isaac has to carry the firewood on his back, right? The The sacrifice has to carry the firewood. Christ had to carry his cross. Isaac also does not try to run away, Right, seems to submit to his father, to his father's will, and Christ submitted to the father's will. 
right? But Isaac doesn't have to die. God says he will provide a sacrifice and he provides the lamb, right? I'm sorry, the ram. Um, so the Lord will provide. He provided a substitute on that mount with Abraham and he provided a substitute for us in the person of Christ, right? And we see how Abraham's faith is once again shown to be great, right? Despite his shortcomings and failures and sins, he's commended for his faith in Christ, right? And like, I, like the question we were asking ourselves in the previous session, who is your confidence in, right? With Abraham, we can see clearly it's in God and what he can do and what he will do in his promises. Genesis 23, um, Sarah dies. A piece of land is bought for her in the promised land of Canaan. So remember, Canaan is the promised land. And uh, that's, that land is bought for her to be buried in. And it's the, it's the only piece of land that Abraham gets in the promised land. So remember, Abraham doesn't really get to experience the promised land. Genesis 24, we get to Isaac and Rebekah. So Isaac, remember, is one of the patriarchs, so Abraham's son, Isaac. Um, the Lord will say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And through Isaac's line, we will get the seed of the woman. Genesis 24, Sarah dies, and Abraham sends out a servant to go find a wife for Isaac. Right? The servant is instructed to find someone of Abraham's family, right? someone who's Jewish. And the servant has faith. He has faith in the Lord because he's given this task. So imagine like you, you are a butler for a very wealthy, powerful family. The royals, okay, maybe those are too controversial right now. Um, For whoever who's famous and big, you know, they're like, go find a wife for our son. That's, you know, it's a big thing. And so this guy, he has faith uh, in the Lord and he prays to God to help him to find the wife and give him discernment and guide him. And um, the servant meets Rebecca at a well. And uh, um, if, you've been, if you've done this course before, you know, you know about wells, right? Wells in the Bible are great because it's like reformed tinder, right? So it's, it's the singles club. It's the singles club of the reformed tinder, guys. Emphasis on reformed. Right? It's godly tinder. So it's... It's the singles club of the day, right? Isaac finds a wife at a while. Jacob finds a wife at a while. And Moses found a wife at a while. So, like, I've got a list here, guys, if you'd like to know where the well, closest wells are. In I'm your guy. I'm your guy. Come speak to me after this. Right? Um, who else found a, well, found a wife at a well? In the New Testament. Christ found this marriage Yeah. So Christ found a wife at a while. Right? Oh. Because she was saved. She, she was converted. And she became part of the bride of Christ. So. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> Jesus was never married. Okay, I will say. Jesus. Jesus was never married. Right? Never married. But he has a bride. Who is the bride? It's his church. It's his people. Right? Finds a Samaritan woman at the time who was walking unbelief. She was married, married and remarried, I think, five times. Right? And then after that, Fatin said she didn't even bother. <laughs> she was like, hey, you're my guy. I'm just living with you. And Jesus confronts her about a sin, offers her, tells her he's the bread of life, bread of living waters, he's the bread of life. And she becomes saved. Right? She becomes part of the bride of Christ. So in that sense, um, 
Jesus found a wife at a well. Hope that makes sense. Okay, don't report, don't report me to Mike. <laughs> Olelo, please. Please. Um, so yeah, the servant goes out looking for a wife for Isaac. He prays to the Lord for helping finding a suitable spouse and even asks for like specific things and God answers that prayer exactly, right? And then Isaac gets married to Rebecca. And then Genesis 25, Abraham dies. Before passing away, we see him take another wife because Sarah, remember, had died. Uh, he takes another wife named Keturah and he has six kids with her. Right, these guys, I mean, like, there was no entertainment back, <laughs> back in those days, so, you know, and we, we, I think it's the same for a lot of our grandparents as well, like, who had lots of kids, but um, he has six kids with her, and then after, so he dies, and then after Isaac and Rebecca marry, they try to have children, but Rebecca is barren, right? So Isaac prays for his wife to bear children and the Lord grants his prayer and boom, there's the twins, Jacob and Esau, right? So sorry, chapter 25, verse 22, the children struggle together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided, the one Shall, shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So the older will serve the younger. And so by implication, the younger of the two will be the blessed one. Right? The firstborn son in the family back then had all the privileges and the rights in the family after the father. So if the father died or was absent, the firstborn, the firstborn son would resume all the responsibilities and authority. Right? He would also... In the family, he would get the biggest inheritance. So it was like five kids in the family. Uh, he would get like five times more than the next kid, for example. Right? He would get all the blessings. And so this is kind of like a radical thing that God is prophesying here. It's like the, the younger, sorry, the older will serve the younger. Right? And as, a believer, as believers, right, we have inherited birthright status through Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn right? Um, he's the firstborn son of God, and Jesus is God's only begotten son. So Jesus received the kingdom from his father and is Lord over everything. So Jesus has a responsibility. He has the authority. And Christ promises to share with us his kingdom and inheritance, right? Because he's as firstborn, um, he gets the inheritance, right? And Paul calls us co-heirs with Christ. So I think it's also like important to clarify that when uh, the Bible refers to firstborn. It's not necessary. It meant two things. It meant actual firstborn, but the firstborn also also mentioned that package. You know, like the firstborn gets all the rights, gets all the authority, and whatever. And even in scripture, we could see that the father could revoke birthright and pass it on to the younger one. Right. So he had that right. So he could be the third son, and um, the father was at his discretion to take that birthright away from you and give it to another child. Right. <coughs> And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Esau gives up his birthright, birthright right? And I think understanding that now, you, have, you can see why that's kind of ridiculous that he did that, right? He gives up all his privileges. He gives up, basically, if a family is a company, he gives up his right to be the CEO and get, you know, that pay and get all the benefits and the authority that comes with it, right? And he did all of this in exchange for a bowl of soup. 
And he did this because he was foolish and because the book of Hebrews says he was unholy. So here are twins and which one is chosen by God? Jacob. Malachi 1 verse 2 says, The Lord declares, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And Paul quotes this to explain to the Romans in chapter 9 verse 10 that before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, right? Before they were even born, before they did anything, um, God chose whom he will love and whom he will hate, right? So that, and he did this so that the doctrine of election might stand, right? So that we know that it is God who calls and not man, like we have nothing to do with it, Right? So God chooses whom he saves. It's not up to us. And it has to be this way when it comes to salvation. Um, it has to be God's free sovereign choice and grace. Otherwise, it's up to the person. If you say salvation is all of grace, then it has to be grace all the way. All the way right? If it's 98% grace, then it's not grace. Right? It's you. Yes? Uh, would you link this story of Esau and Jacob to that in Matthew 11, the prodigal son? Um, would I link the, the, the prodigal son parable to this? I wouldn't um, because uh, Esau is like an unbeliever. And like if you read like his whole story, it just doesn't end well with him, right? Um, because also like the point of the, the prodigal uh, parable, right? I think there's many things you can take from that parable. But I think one of the, the key ones is that it shows how God is always willing to... Uh, uh, to welcome those who are repentant, right? Because the prodigal son, he does something foolish, right? He, he gets his inheritance, right? He gets everything that was due to him as a firstborn. Oh, was he the firstborn? I forget he was. A, I think he was the older son. Was he? Yeah, but I think both brothers would get inheritance anyways. But point is, he, he takes like from his father and then, you know, he leaves and then he goes and lives in sin and whatever. And then he comes to his senses or he's broken and then he comes back and we see how welcoming the father is in the prodigal uh, account. So I think the point there is to show like those who are repentant, God welcomes it. Like God is always, you know, eagerly waiting for his son to come back. So I would say that Esau was never a son of God because, you know, even he, God hated him, you know, in that he was never going to be saved. So with prodigal son, I see believers. It's like a story for believers. It's, it's referring to believers, you know. Um, because you were a son, you were like in the family and he left the family and then you come back to the family. Whereas Esau, he was never part of the family because he wasn't chosen by God. So I think I, I wouldn't relate or link the two of them for that reason. Um, so, yeah, it has to be all of grace. Um, the motive for God's choosing is not in us. It's not in the person. Right. Otherwise, you might say that Jacob was a great guy. He was amazing, but 
he wasn't even born. So where was the criteria, you know, for God to, to say, this is a fantastic person. You know, I want him in my family. So the Lord prophesies that the older will serve the younger. But Isaac doesn't take too well to it, right? Which son does he prefer? Esau. Esau, right? But God has chosen Jacob. Isaac prefers Esau because he is, Esau is a manly man. You know, he's a skilled man. He's out in the field. He's like, you know, you can just imagine Isaac's like, that's my boy. You know, he's outdoing all the other guys. Um, and he's a skilled hunter who brings meat in for his father, right? Meat is expensive. I'd also appreciate that. <laughs> Rebecca preferred Jacob. And why? Because he was more domesticated, right? Helped around the house, did the chores, Sunday gospel music playing. He was there cleaning with his mom. Um, but Jacob is also a very cunning, sneaky character, right? He's a deceiver and a mommy's boy, right? So that's a deadly combination, guys. <laughs> Genesis 27, when Isaac is on his deathbed, right? So Isaac is now old. His, uh, his sight is almost gone. Um, um, Jacob, with the help of his mother, tricks his father into thinking that he's Esau and manages to get Isaac's blessing, right? And as soon as Jacob gets the blessing, Esau comes in and finds out what happened, right? And Esau's furious, angry, plans to kill his brother. Rebecca hears his plan, or yeah, she hears his plan uh, and tells Jacob, tells Jacob to flee and flee to his uncle Laban. And all this family drama, all these consequences could have been avoided if Isaac had just listened to God, right? There was a prophecy telling him that the younger will serve, the older will serve the younger, right? And what is Isaac constantly trying to do? He's trying to get Esau, you know, to get the blessing. He wants Esau to still be treated as the firstborn when God has said this will happen. And if uh, Isaac had just gone with God's plan, you know, things would have worked out smoother. But God had to bring it about through all these things which have really now, you know, fractured the family. You know, one brother wants to kill the other one. Um, Isaac is on his deathbed. It's all bad, right? And it's interesting because I think Isaac doesn't die after he gives a blessing to Jacob, right? He still lives for like 30 or 40 years. Because like once what he had to do is done, you know, God's like, okay, can it restore you? So you can, we can assume that he was restored to health because he lives for like 30 or 40 years after that. Genesis 29, so Jacob might be known as the deceiver, but God puts him with a proper deceiver in his uncle, right? Um, um, Laban is a man with experience and expertise when it comes to deception, right? Isaac, sorry, Jacob has his uh, undergrad, Laban's got a PhD, right? And Laban really tested Jacob and he weeded out a lot of issues in his life, right? His own idols are exposed. His own sin is exposed. And that's what happens in our own lives, right? God often uses other people to reveal our sin. And it's often through their sinfulness, you know? Uh, I remember a sermon that was preached here. Um, someone said, like, if you notice, God will, will often put you with someone with your particular sin, you know? So if you like person with a bad temper is like normally angry, you know, you will come across or you'll be in a situation in life where you have to deal with a person like you, who's normally worse than you, and then you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's really a gracious thing. Um, um, 
It's the way of getting a taste of your own medicine, where God chastises you. And that's what happens to Jacob here. And then Jacob goes to Reform Tender, and he meets Rachel, and he lusts after her. Right? I know this has been made out to be a story of amazing love by your favorite YouTuber who's into Christian stuff or whatever, or a sermon you've seen in the past. But I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a story of amazing love. Right? I don't think this is the Old Testament version of the notebook. It's really lust. Right? He lusts after her. He's after sex. He works seven years for Laban so that he may have her hand in marriage. But what does he say after all that time? Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So that's what he says after seven years. Give me my wife. I want to have sex with her. So I don't know about you guys. Maybe is that romantic? Is that, <laughs> you know, it's not like you said yes. Oh, <laughs> Look, I guess we all have different ideas of romance. You know? Who am I to judge? Um, so that's what he says after seven years, right? We know the story. Laban tricks him and gives him Leah, Rachel's older sister, who wasn't as attractive as Rachel. And so he decides to work another seven years, right? And as he goes through his life, Laban keeps cheating him and conning him. And it's only then that you see Jacob finally becoming a man, right? He finally decides... He's going to lead his family back to the promised land. He finally takes the lead. He finally takes ownership you know, of his life and who he was. Genesis 32, right? Jacob is preparing to go home. Uh, but before he gets to the promised land where he meets Esau and reconciles with him, out of the blue, so like, script is like a movie, man. Like, out of the blue, a man comes and wrestles with Jacob in the night, right? Jacob is wrestling with God. That's what we find out late in the passage. Even though he was a very domesticated man, Jacob is a strong man. Right? Uh, scripture, in Scripture, he's described as a strong guy. So um, he's fighting, and then this man touches him on his hip, and Jacob is injured and can't wrestle anymore. Right? And he's just holding on to God. Right? So I'm, I'm sure you've seen like boxers or fighting. Like when you get tired, they just like hold on to each other because then they can't strike you. So I think that's the picture you get. He's just holding on to him. Verse 26, then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So it's really a prayer because this person is the Lord, right? He's wrestling with God. He says, I won't let you go until you bless me. The Lord replies, verse 27, he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then the man has to leave while it's dark in case Jacob sees his face, right? Because no one can see the face of God and live. But God asked him, what is his name? Which is a strange question because God knows, right? Jacob tells him, and remember, what does Jacob mean? Deceiver, right? Jacob means a deceiver. So what is he doing? He's confessing. He's owning his character, right? He's confessing his sin. And so God changes his name to Israel, which means to strive with God. And how exactly does one strive with God? Right? His physical strength got him nowhere. Right? He ended up paralyzed and unable to move. He was broken. And it's only when he was broken did he hold on to God and pray and ask him to bless him. And that's the lesson for us. It's not in our own strength that we can strive with God. 
right? It's in Jacob's. It's in Jacob's acknowledging of his sin and acknowledging of his weakness and his prayer for God's blessing, that he gets God's blessing, right? And it's the same for us. We need to be confessing our sin and crying out to the Lord in our weakness and brokenness. And this is a turning point in Jacob's life. He remains with a limp for the rest of his life uh, after that, right? So he's never really healed. And I think that's like a reminder for him, you know. We get to Genesis 37, right? 37, Jacob has 12 children, which is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So remember his name is now no longer uh, in chapter 37, 37. So we know his name is no longer uh, Jacob, it's Israel. And one of his sons, his name is Joseph, and we never hear of the tribe of Joseph, right? Why is that? Does anyone know? Nobody knows. Okay. It's because, so Joseph had two sons, right? And they become the 12th tribe, right? They're called the half tribes. So what is the name of the one? I think it's Manasseh and something else. Ephraim. It's Ephraim and Manasseh, right? So they become the half tribes, which make up the tribe of Joseph, right? So you never hear of the tribe of Joseph, even though he's one of the 12. And... Um, um, Jacob actually adopted Joseph's sons, right? So I think that's in uh, chapter 48. So he adopted his own grandsons as sons. So, um, yeah. So from here, we get Joseph's story, right? And Joseph takes up a huge portion of Genesis, right? From 37 until the end. And it's, it's really, I think, it's amazing because uh, Joseph is an amazing type or shadow of Christ, Right? Joseph is Jacob and Rachel's child, and he is the favorite child. He's the favorite child in the family. Very dysfunctional family. You see blatant favoritism, right? You have 10 kids, um, but you treat Joseph as if he's the only legitimate one, right? So imagine uh, you're with the family, you go to the mall, and you go into Gucci, and you buy a jacket, give it to Joseph, and you're like, okay, guys, let's go home. And then how are the other kids supposed to feel about that? Right? That's, what it, that's, that's really what happens there. You know, he makes a beautiful coat for his son. Uh, and then the other kids just have to live with it. Right? They have to deal with it. He doesn't help. Right? He what? Uh, I'm saying Joseph doesn't even help the situation. He doesn't. He doesn't. He's just, he's like a, he's a goody two-shoes. That's the thing. And I don't think it's bad. It's not like, I don't think Joseph, as a kid, he was just like, you know, rubbing it in his brother's faces. I mean, he was a think, and... Yeah. I think he was just a good child. Like, he was like, and you know, like, sometimes like, the good child, you know, when you're in school and there's that good child and he's always doing the right thing. And now he's hated because of that. I think that's the case with Joseph and his brothers, you know. Um, yeah, and that's what we see, right? So verse 9 of chapter 37 says, then, oh, sorry, not there. But somewhere where it says that, yeah, it's verse 11. It's like, and his brothers were jealous of him, right? But his father kept the saying in mind. So it's like, you know, he's, he's constantly provoking his brothers to jealousy and the parents are not helping because they're treating him as the special one. Um, and in verse nine of there, right? He dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. 
But when it's but you see, I don't think it's like saying, oh, you guys are gonna bow down to me. I think it's just telling him, like, guys, I had this dream. You guys are bowing down to me. You know? Because, um, like, it, it's, he's just an upstanding character. Like, you know, from start to finish, you don't really see anything bad. So I think he's just, you know, the good kid effect. Um, so, yeah, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, verse 10, um, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? So now the father's also offended. Now he's tasting, getting a taste of his own medicine because the father's also bowing down to him. Um, and he says, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of it, but his father kept the saying in mind. So this dream is very important because, uh, especially when it comes to understanding the book of Revelation, right? Because... That this is kind of what we use as a key or uh, a way to interpret one of a lot of the visions that we see there. So um, it says here that Jacob kept this dream in mind. So we should do the same thing for when we get to the book of Revelation. So like I said, guys, Joseph was upright as a kid and that increased the brother's jealousy of him, right? The sibling rivalry intens- intensifies. So the brothers end up throwing him in a pit and they sell him into slavery in Egypt, where he works in Potiphar's house. So Potiphar was probably a very wealthy man. Uh, he was employed as a captain of the guard. And he was wealthy because he had enough money to buy a slave, right? to buy a servant like, Jake, uh, like Joseph. But Joseph works hard and diligently for Potiphar. And he gets promoted to be in charge of Potiphar's affairs. Genesis 39 you guys are familiar with the account of Potiphar's wife and Joseph. Uh, Potiphar's wife tries every day to seduce him. And we can assume that uh, his wife was really attractive because Potiphar was rich, right? So it must have been a huge temptation, right? So I think like we shouldn't gloss over the fact that, you know, he just ran away. I think um, it was a temptation for him, right? Which uh, just signifies how godly of a man he was, you know, that, you know, even though he's tempted, he does the right thing, right? Even when he's grabbed by her, he flees fornication, uh, which is what the Bible tells us to do. And then Potiphar's wife falsely plays the victim so that Joseph is falsely accused and he's thrown in jail with two other men. Verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So Joseph would interpret the prisoner's dreams. And even in prison, he's, he's diligent you know, and trustworthy so that even the prison wouldn't trust him. And so when the king, uh, when the pharaoh has a dream and can't interpret it, the one guy who was in prison with Joseph remembers, oh, there was this guy who was just telling us what our dreams meant. And he lets the king know about him. And then in Genesis 41, Genesis 41, Joseph is brought before the king, right? And he's able to interpret the dream. And after that, he's rewarded and promoted to second in command, right? He's promoted to the prime minister. So it's a true rags to riches story. Your favorite rapper could never. (laughs) So Joseph interprets the dream the king had and explains it in verse 29. So... 
chapter 41, verse 29, says, There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will, be, there will arise seven years of famine. Right? So there's going to be great prosperity, and then there's going to be famine. And so Joseph um, helps with preparations for the famine, which saves the lives of many people and many nations around the world. Right? So I think even from that, you can see uh, a lot of pointers of Joseph to Christ. Right? You can see how amazing of a type of Christ he is. Right? Who betrays Joseph? It's his brothers. Right? It's his family. Who betrays Jesus? It is, it is, it's the Jews. Right? His people. Right? Uh, who specifically sold Joseph into slavery? Of the twelve brothers, Judah. Judah, right? Who specifically sold Jesus? Same, same name. Um, if if you're Jude. because the saviour later comes from the family of the betrayer right so it's a gracious thing so and we'll see later on like how Judah repented of this um, so Joseph was falsely accused right? he was falsely accused of raping parts of his wife Jesus was falsely accused right Joseph was thrown into jail with two prisoners one who lives and one who dies Jesus was hung on the cross with two prisoners right one who lives eternally and one who is condemned to death eternally, right? In one day, Joseph goes from prison, right, the lowest of low to the highest position in the land, right? And in one day at the resurrection, Jesus rise to, rises to be seated at the throne of God, right? In his humanity, right? He becomes the, Messi the messianic king. And through what Joseph does in preparing for the famine, many people are saved, including people from all the nations. Right? Because if you read the accounts, people from far lands all over the world come to Egypt because they need to be saved. Right? They need food. Right? And what does Romans 5.19 tell us about Christ? It says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Right? Right? Through Christ, many nations are saved. He has saved men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So it's amazing. And you can see why Scripture spends so much time on Joseph and his life. Right? He's an amazing type and shadow of Christ. Okay. Uh, Genesis 44. Jacob dies and now the brothers are worried that Joseph is going to turn on them. Right? Since their dad is gone, they think Joseph has no incentive to not get revenge. Right? These are the people that betrayed him, that sold him into slavery, his own flesh and blood. And Joseph is powerful now, so you can understand why the brothers would be anxious. Uh, and Joseph, in dealing with him, is quite elaborate. You know, it's, it's just kind of like, oh, do you have to go through these lengths? He's there planting food and planting things in their food bags. And then he frames Benjamin, the youngest brother, as a thief. Right? Um, it seems like he's testing them to see if they've changed. And in verse 33, Judah says to Joseph, 
Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see, I, I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Right? So uh, Joseph is threatening to, to punish Benjamin. And what does Judah say? Like, no, take me instead. You know, We see that Judah would rather take the punishment for Benjamin. And Judah's concern is about his father's reaction to losing Benjamin. Whereas before, when Judah and his brother sold Joseph into slavery, they had no regard for their father. Right? So we see how they have changed. The Lord has worked in his heart. Right? And um, like Daniel was saying, you know, Christ will come from the tribe of Judah. So there's a redemption there. And then chapter 50. Right? Uh, we close with these important verses from Genesis 50. So his brothers are still worried that Joseph will take revenge on them once their father dies. Right? So they send a letter asking for forgiveness for the wickedness they did to him all, uh, all the way back. And Joseph responds, verse 19, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for, I, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Right, so this is a key verse for understanding the problem of evil, right? Uh, which is a common objection to Christianity still. If God is all-powerful, how can he be good, right? Because um, if he's all-powerful, he would stop evil. And if he's not stopping evil, that means he's not all-powerful, right? He's not strong enough. He doesn't have the power to stop evil, right? Um, so how do we answer that? You know, when someone comes to you like that. Someone says, why isn't God stopping evil? Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, Stop by saying, I think it's the problem of uh, uh, God's sovereignty and, and, and men's evil, I think. So far, I've not had any convincing answer. I don't have come close. Uh, yeah, and, I, and I've actually left it to say uh, I don't think I will. It's, it's sort of like what you call tension, where um, so God is all powerful, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, man is it's it's responsible for the evil that, that is out there. Uh, so so my, my answer is normally that so it, the evil that is in the world, right? Um, it's what we see in the world is not final. So it might be that God's justice is delayed, for instance. Or um, the evil goes on, um, but we we believe that eventually the evil in someone who did something terrible, they'll have their day in court before God. It might not be now in this in this life, but but that will happen. So the one who holds the view of what we see now in this world is all there is. Then there is no justice for someone who, let's say, some something terrible happened to them. Or yeah, some they did something terrible to you. Hard luck because a person will die and there's no justice. So justice is, is denied in that case. But with God, we I don't understand why he delays justice in, in some instances, but we know for sure that he never denies justice. Hmm. Yeah. Someone can die, but they die, that day will come they have to stand before God and come for it. And if let's say that someone has a natural disaster because someone objected that 
Okay, but assume that there's no evil that is done by a human being or by a human agent. It's just, you know, earthquake, someone dies. So, yeah, if someone dies, they're in a, uh, I believe God is righteous, and they will be comforted. Because if then the God is not there, um, well, have luck, earthquake happened to them. But, but they, they, they now, like, Doing, uh, well, doing the justice now um, is the one that I think give my head down. Mm. Okay. Uh, but the comfort is eventually that will be taken care of. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's I think thing. also if you are a believer, um, God mentions that all things work for good, whether bad or good. So he uses the evil to Make you a better Christian if you are a believer. Yeah, hmm. say that. So he uses evil in our sanctification process. How would you know God will sustain you if you went in a situation where you needed him mm. to sustain you kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I believe like scripture teaches a third option, right? That is, um, he's all powerful, he's all good, and he uses evil for good, right? Which is what we say. Right. It's it's human responsibility because they meant it for evil. Right? They did it. But God made that same event for good and in this context so that many could be saved. Right? And we all know what the greatest evil that has ever been done was. Right? It's the the punishment of the only innocent man who's ever lived. Right? And what is that for? It was for good. Right? And God did it. Right. It's God who put his son on the cross 
but it's men who did it as well. So um, all these things are true, right? And I think it's also one of those things about God. It's like, how does God, you know, I think we try to figure out the exact mechanics, you know, how does God... Is he like controlling someone? Is he moving the chess the chess pieces here? <laughs> so he does that. Um, but I think it's one of those things that, like one of the mysteries that belong to the Lord that scripture tells about because ultimately our minds are finite and we can never fully understand God because then he wouldn't be God, you know? Um, um, so it's like a lot of things. Like I'm, I'm reading this book on the Trinity, right? It's called The Forgotten Trinity. <coughs> and trying to explain the Trinity because I think it's a thing that's very misunderstood, you know, things that's not even misunderstood but very difficult to understand for believers, something that even I struggle with. And the author in like just the first chapter makes this point that the thing is with the Trinity, something we'll never grasp because you're trying to describe God who is completely unique, right? So the moment you try to think about it, when we try to explain the Trinity, what do you do? You really look for an analogy. Like, well, think of this, but you're comparing something that's completely unique. You know, like, what do you have? So it's like, that's an example of our minds that are finite, you know. Um, I mean, we like to call ourselves creators, like Ricardo, but um, <laughs> we can never create, you know, from scratch. God is the only one who can create something out of nothing. At best, we plagiarize from God's creation, right? We limit it in that sense. We like, we hear, and he's up there. So... Um, what we do know, and like scripture tells us, is that he's given us ways to know him, you know, that is sufficient, you know, that is, that is good, at least for this life. And I um, guess that's why, you know, we'll spend an eternity in heaven getting to know him because he's an eternal God. So, yeah, God is in control of things, but he's not responsible for evil, right? But he ordains the evil so that good may come out. So what does Job say? Shall we not receive both good and evil from the Lord? You know, and in that account, it's the devil who's doing these things. But Joe doesn't say, oh, shall we not receive good from God and evil from the devil? No, he, say, he sees straight through and goes to the one who's ultimately in control, right? And even countless pa- passages, you know, referring to like natural disaster, it says like God, God brings about the wickedness uh, on the city. You know, he brings about these things, the destruction or the chaos and whatever. God is in control because imagine if he wasn't then we'd be worried we'd have a reason to be worried but um, we don't have to we don't have to worry God is in control he's sovereign and that's what we can rest in yeah okay we've gone past our time any other that's me done it was open to you guys any questions comments